0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's go back to the tenure of a shorter duration, the benchmark. 2.89%, so that's now 11 basis points from 3%, George Bory with us, uh, with Wells Fargo. If I use the benchmark, George, where do I sweat? Where do we really click in with some bond damage what yield
1: yeah thank you good morning tom uh well i think three percent on the 10-year yield is uh it's a it's somewhat of a magic number um if you look back over time there's some critical support levels uh where bonds you know should, should be trading within certain ranges and uh once you breach uh, kind of We'll call it three to 3.05 percent on the U.S. 10-year. You start sort of entering into what I would call the danger zone. You lose a lot of technical support. You know those folks that look at historical trends and trade based on momentum will start to lose faith uh, in the ability of bond prices to go up. So you know the expectation would be that yields go higher. And then I think also importantly, as you point as you point out, you know that would be about a 60 basis point increase in yields. And and so, mark-to-market negative returns across investor portfolios become a lot more uh, real, uh, and they certainly become a lot more meaningful. And so, those bond investors who open up their statements at the end of the month are going to be in for a little bit of a surprise. Mm.
2: Well, that classic sixty forty mix looks ugly so far this year, doesn't it? And I, I just wonder what that means for investor rebalancing in the coming months, George.
1: So, I think there's a there's a major shift going on. You know, for the last ten years. The uh, the Fed and other central banks have told you to effectively sell your cash and buy something else. Yeah. And now, uh, you know, a few a uh, few years ago, but with increasing intensity, you know, the Fed is starting to raise rates. and what I like to say is it's it's the long march back to cash. They're starting to encourage people to pull money back into cash. And as you know, it takes a while for markets to pick up on a particular trend or a particular theme. And then there's this sort of one instantaneous moment where everyone has the aha moment and, and money starts to rush in a particular direction. And and I think after literally 10 years of, of moving away from cash, you know, there's a little bit of money starting to move back you know, towards towards cash. And and I think that is a, is a very, very significant yeah. shift.
0: What's the dynamic right now of clipping a coupon versus total return?
1: So what, what you know, the way I think about coupons, they do a couple things. If you're uh, if you're a retired investor or if you're living on your capital, you know, that's your income stream. If you're a if you're a long-term investor though, or or, or an investor that has a, is is not using that money today, you know it's your ability to compound. Uh, it's your ability to reinvest at whatever rate happens to be available at that particular time. And so you know bonds that have been issued over the last couple of years have very very thin coupons, so you don't have the opportunity to reinvest all that much. It's not zero. Some instances it's zero. Like in Europe, it's very, very low. Uh, Here in the U.S., it's a little bit higher. Uh, But those coupons become very powerful to a portfolio. And so when you look across different parts of the market right now, that high income generation or that high coupon can be a very powerful tool to help you offset some of those capital losses Uh, the mark-to-market capital
2: losses and earn back some of that lost money due to interest rate volatility. A month ago, if Tom had asked that question, what was the prospect for total return, say in high yield in 2018, most investors would have said, it's not that great, it's a year for coupon clipping, you're not going to get the capital returns out of high yield this year, spreads are just too tight already. We've had some widening over the last couple of weeks. Has Mm -hmm. that changed your view on the trajectory of high yield this year? It
1: has not. Uh, you know, our, when we started the year, uh, we were expecting, or we still are expecting, about a five to maybe as high as six, but let's call it a 5% total return for the year. Uh, and we still feel pretty good about that. We had a very good start to the year. And then obviously we've given a, a fair bit of that back. But what's redeeming about high yield is that it, it sort of throws off a higher coupon. So, you know, it currently has a coupon like level of, of about six to to six and a quarter, uh, which it's still early in the year. So you can sort of reinvest that money as you move through time. So a a 5% type return is, we still think, is is still pretty realistic for this year.
2: Are the prospects for this asset class determined by what's going to happen with crude still, just on an index mm-hmm. level, because at the back end of last week, crude really broke down. WTI yeah. back south of uh, $60. And I think that's when we really started to see high yield credits start to bleed, George. So I'm just wondering, do those two things start to move in tandem again in a way that they haven't in previous months? So um, high yield as an asset class
1: does have a relatively high <coughs> um, contribution uh, from, from energy-related uh, companies. So I think it's roughly about 12% of the high yield market is somehow is is basically energy links. So we do have uh, a fair bit of sensitivity to oil prices. Um and and with oil prices coming down, that did put a little bit of pressure. But yeah. I think the important thing is keep in mind a lot of those companies that had meaningful problems, they 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 sort of restructured a couple of years ago. Today's sort of stock <clears throat> of companies, if you will, are in pretty good right. shape. And, uh, and should be able to weather the recent um, volatility in oil prices.
0: I'm, I'm from the Lehman Lowe's, I'm looking at the, the Bloomberg Barclays uh, uh, U.S. Total Aggregate uh, Index. I'm going to get it out on uh, Twitter for all of Bloomberg Radio. And maybe the worst since 2008 is 2012-13, where we went down 4.6% on the index, roughly 7.3% annum. So that's roughly one-third of a bear market. That's a pullback. And the way I look at that, George, is that's a year and a half or two years of coupon. I mean, that's really in terms of risk taken, your risk is to give up two years of coupon and a pullback, right?
1: You know, I think that's exactly right. And I think uh, as you talk, you know, sort of the aggregate bond market has, you know, a relatively long duration. And and just simply thinking about duration is kind of that, you know, that break even, if you will, relative to... um, uh, to sensitivity to changes in interest rates, so as prices go down, a small coupon, you know, requires a lot longer period of time to earn back that kind of that kind of loss, and and so one of the strategies we've been advocating is is actually staying closer to higher coupon uh, like entities, and and we just kind of remind people the economy is doing pretty well, companies are actually earning a tremendous amount of money, and that's going up, so their ability to pay yeah. is getting better, and should enable the those high coupon companies to continue paying you those coupons. I
0: mean, John, I just think it's fabulous. Doug Cass uh, uh, sends in a nice uh, message here just saying, look at high yields versus treasuries and how historically tight they are.
1: Your thoughts on that, George? Well, I mean, spreads are still... You know they're relatively tight, <clears throat> yeah. Um, but but as as yields go up uh, in in an expanding economy, or, or you know we we will tend to see credit spreads actually tighten. Default rates are coming down at a very sharp uh, rate, uh, and we expect them to continue to come down over the course of the year. So. You can look back and say historically credit spreads are tight, that's true, but when you have corporate profitability expanding by, let's call it, 10-12% per annum, you know not a lot of companies
2: are going to be defaulting in that kind of environment. George Borey, final word on Treasuries, big CPI print on Wednesday. Is this a market that's primed a whole lot better for an inflation surprise this week in the United States? I do not think we're primed for an inflation surprise. If we break to the
1: upside, if inflation comes out above consensus, so anything above 1.7%, I think you'll get
2: to 3% on the Treasury in a hurry and probably a bit more. George Borey, it's great to catch up with you to get your thoughts on the fixed income universe from sovereigns all the way through to credit. George Borey, the Wells Fargo Securities Head of Credit Strategy.
0: I would suggest this is the interview of the day. Mr. Bernstein was an advisor for Vice President Biden. He is someone with a tilt to the Democrats or left that all conservatives read, senior fellow of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and of course, for years with the Economic Policy Institute. Jared, honored to have you on after the beginning weekend of literature. I want to cut to the chase, which is how do you define and what does it mean if we have chronic $1 trillion deficits?
3: Well, first of all, it's always the best way to start the day talking to you, too. So thank you. Uh, well, uh, I like to put these things in the context of GDP, uh, and we're looking at a deficit to GDP that's between four or five percent over the next couple of years. That's extremely unusual to have deficits as, of that magnitude with an unemployment rate this low. In fact, we've almost never done it before. So it means we're stimulating an economy that's closing in on full employment. I totally agree with the point that was just made that uh, the key indicator to watch will be inflation. But since we don't really know where we are relative to full employment, it's not necessarily uh, an inflationary mm-hmm. move, but it's a lot more Keynesian than Keynes himself would engage in. Andrew
0: Vandom, among other sources in The Washington Post this weekend, did a Jared Bernstein treatment on charts ratios of deficit. What is the ratio besides deficit to GDP that Jared Bernstein is watching as we begin our analysis of 2020?
3: Well, I think I'm, I'm looking interestingly, it's called the unemployment rate, the ratio of the unemployed to the labor force. And I think that could get down to 3.5% by the end really? of this year. That's a number we haven't seen since the 1960s. The question is, will that unleash pressures in inflation and interest rates that will cause right. the Fed to move from tapping the brakes to hitting them much harder? Let's
0: go a little wonkish here, uh, Jared Bernstein. Some would suggest we may get stimulus Tax cut, stimulus, uh, budget silliness, stimulus, two bouts of stimulus, mm-hmm. and we get domestic stimulus, but we give it all back over at minus NX, where the trade deficit expands, mm. et cetera, off dollar dynamics. Could we have a two-part economy, a boom domestic America, and an that's international cool. component that's weak?
3: Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up because I haven't heard it enough. You guys look at so much data that you're always looking under under rocks that others miss. Uh, I've been writing about this myself. I see it differently, though. I do think that the magnitude of the trade deficit is going to be a drag on growth this year. And those who are looking at this uh, stimulus, which, by the way, is not a chance of whether we're going to get it. We are going to get it. We're going to get more fiscal stimulus than we've probably ever had at an unemployment rate this low. That will help to offset the drag on GDP growth from the growing trade deficits. So I don't know that that's such
2: a downside. Jared, typically it's emerging markets that fear twin deficits. Why should the United States of America fear twin deficits?
3: I don't think they should for precisely the reason I just said. I mean, if you have the... Uh, if you have the trade deficit as a drag on GDP growth, yeah. which is definitional, then having the government step in and offset that, you know, you, you either have to up, offset your trade deficit with consumption, <laughs> investment, or government spending. Uh, again, a lot of this depends on whether we're closing in on full employment, because then the extra spending just shows up as inflation and higher interest rates. But if there's still some room to run, and I think there's, uh, there is, there uh, is, then that offset is actually a, a useful one.
2: So, Jared, market participants won't fear debt. Deficits, they probably won't fear a $1 trillion budget deficit either, 5% yeah. of GDP. What they will be concerned about is the trajectory, where we're going, the destinations. Just several years ago, the UK had a budget deficit of 5% of GDP, but it was closing. And that was the important factor. This one's getting wider. And yeah. wider. How much wider do you think that can get? Could we approach, say, almost 10 percent of GDP before the next downturn, which would be absolutely no, remarkable, no, no. Jared. We can,
3: and that, that's exactly the way to look at this. I, I, I distinguish between the near term and the long term. In the near term, I hear a lot of people. Uh, creating a lot of anxiety that I don't share. In the long term, I'm right with them. And it's precisely for the reason you suggest. At some point uh, after a few years, you have to start squaring your outlays with your receipts. Uh, That's not a sustainable pattern. And, And there's no way... Uh, I shouldn't say there's no way. I I would be very surprised if larger budget deficits than the ones we currently have a few years from now are not problematic, in no small part from the reason you suggested. We're we're going to lack fiscal space, or at least perceived fiscal space, when we hit the next downturn.
0: I've never asked this question. Are Patrick Leahy of Vermont and Richard Shelby of the South— Are they on the same page on this budget? Between them, they have 75 years of senatorial experience. Are Leahy and Shelby on the same page on this booming budget deficit? I don't think that they've been – I think that the politicians just haven't been able to
3: resist the uh, the spending. And at least for Democrats, who I can speak to most authoritatively, they'd actually have a, have a good rationale. I mean, the share of the budget that we're devoting to domestic priorities for okay. Democrats is at an all-time low.
0: <clears throat> Let's come back. Jared Bernstein with a smart discussion on the deficit. Whatever your politics, we like that. Of course, with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and you know they – And many other think tanks are going to provide wisdom in the coming weeks. He is uh, the laureate from Yale on economics, and there are always too many things to talk about with Robert Schiller. So let us focus in on one of the things he's been focusing on, on. which is the simplicity and failure of the price-earnings relationship. And maybe there's a better way to do this. Professor Schiller, wonderful to have you with us. How do you teach extrapolation at Yale University? (laughs) The dangers of extrapolation, uh, the suspect nature of the value of extrapolation. When you got a chalk piece in your hand and a chalkboard, what do you actually say (laughs) to the cherubs at Yale?
4: Well, I don't think extrapolation is mostly mechanical. It's not like people are charting the data and drawing lines. It's more intuitive. People like to think about investments in a satisfying way that sounds commonsensical. And they just remember recent years. And they don't study history, right? And and if the last 10 years has been up, then they kind of think that's the way the world works. Uh, and if it's been down, they think that the world is a dangerous place.
0: I, I mean, just, the, yeah. the, if Robert Fogel was so good in Angus Madison of looking back at how we tried to guess forward. Are we any good at guessing forward in the markets?
4: Well, and you know, I, I always say that efficient markets is a half-truth. To some extent, we do, especially individual stocks, you know, that have a promising uh, story. The market gets that somewhat. Maybe they overreact to the story, but it's, uh, you know, we do have, I I am (laughs) pro-market in some sense. It's just not perfect.
5: Professor Schiller, i wonder if you could speak a little bit about the word itself, the word finance and how it is misunderstood and misapplied to the idea of wanting to make money.
4: Well, okay, uh, I teach a finance course here at Yale, and online, by the way. It's for free on Coursera. But I emphasize that finance isn't really about making money in the sense that many people think. It's, about, it's a technology for allocating resources, for incentivizing people to do something for other people, <laughs> according to someone someone else's desires. Uh, and it's a, um, it has powerful implications. Risk management is, is a powerful tool to improve human welfare.
5: Having said that, I'm wondering if you could then apply that attitude towards the prices that are paid for stocks and why you describe some markets as so pricey that really the way we measure them is not
4: really accurate well i don't you know uh, take my course <laughs> you don't you, you don't need to <laughs>
5: oh yes i do
4: <laughs> um i think that uh finance went through a phase uh, uh theoretical finance went through a phase uh, w- uh which was uh, you might say a turning point was uh eugene fama's efficient market theory around 1970 uh and then the random walk down wall street with malkiel uh It it was a model that uh, was a little bit too self-satisfied and too uh, mechanical. And now there's been a behavioral finance revolution, which is still going on. Uh,
0: Professor Schiller, everybody's equity focused on the exuberance of Robert Schiller. When you see high-yield bonds, BAA industrials, to go back to my grandfather. Priced this narrow and tight to full faith and credit 10 years, does that, exp- does that define for you a bond bubble? That bonds are priced to perfection, as maybe Sir John Templeton would mention it?
4: Well, the bond market uh, has had a peculiar tendency to track lagged inflation, so there's a uh, – I think it's a 70% correlation between bond yields and the last 10 years of inflation, but not much correlation with the next 10 years inflation. So the bond market is, is backward-looking, just like the stock market is.
0: I, I look, Professor Schultz, at all this. Just what were your comments quickly here on, once again, the certain thing, the short VIX trade? and then down we go with 70 and 80% losses. Oh, how, what was your response when you saw those charts eight days ago?
4: Uh, it was not surprising to me that volatility would suddenly shoot up after a period of historic low volatility. Uh, this is... Uh, it's kind of what happens in a bubble The same thing happened in 1929 Although volatility wasn't really low In the late 1920s It was not high uh, And so uh, and Earnings were growing <laughs> I hate to bring mm-hmm. 1929 I love that story So does everyone else <laughs> It's <clears throat> a dramatic story Everything looked fine Volatility was low And then suddenly the market dropped The one well, thing that was wrong Was that people thought the market was overpriced Same thing happened recently here just now.
0: Very good. Uh, Robert Schiller, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. with Yale University. Just some perspective there <clears throat> from the academic end. And now, really folks, what we love to do, which is give you an important conversation across these markets for a judicious length of time. Jakim Fels with us of PIMCO. Jakim, you were acclaimed for the synthesis of the three B's, the three C's. Are you on to the three D's? I mean, we're going through the alphabet here. How do you write an essay about what we've witnessed in the last 10 days?
6: Well, Tom, I think what we're seeing here is that markets have to come to grips with uh, the very tricky transition from a world where monetary policy was the only game in town um, lifted all asset prices in order to support the real economy, <clears throat> and now we're transitioning from monetary policy to fiscal policy. And you know, ironically, this is what economists and central bankers had been calling for uh, for a long time—that fiscal policy steps in to support the economy, so monetary policy can step back. Uh, but I think what we're learning is, and what markets are, are learning, uh, that this is a very tricky transition. The reason is fiscal policy supports the economy directly. It does not work through uh, financial markets. It does not work mm-hmm. through asset prices. And uh, more fiscal stimulus can actually be bad for asset prices. The reason is that well, we're seeing rising budget deficits. The Treasury has to issue more debt into the market. This could push up the term premium and bond yields, and it could lead to what I would call a reverse portfolio rebalancing effect where markets have to absorb the additional bond supply, um, and that means uh, <clears throat> investors could move out of risk yeah. assets, and you know this could backfire on the real economy, and I think this is what markets are currently trying to come to grips with. These are
0: the set of unexpected, unexpecteds, and even true unexpected, unexpecteds. It could be out there. So much of this has a background of gurus and pundits, Yakim Fels, suggesting that we can do all this smoothly and that the glide pass of adjustment from QE to QT or whatever the theory may be or the the, the theme may be, that we can all do this smoothly. I see no evidence of that in history. Where did we get this belief in spl- smooth glide paths to a new regime?
6: Well, <clears throat> I think we've seen it working in Japan. Um, so it is possible to do it smoothly. But what it requires is that the central bank you know, has to get in, in bed with the government. So uh, there has to be monetary and fiscal coordination. The Bank of Japan did this beautifully by just pegging the 10-year bond yield and inviting the government to do more fiscal expansion. Um, But this is not what we're doing in the U.S., at least not yet. Yeah, but we
0: can't make the comparison to Japan, where they've got such an absolutely original savings culture, can we?
6: Culturally, they're different, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they've gone through uh, uh, two decades, two lost decades with uh, deflation. So. Uh, that's also what's different. So I think the transition from monetary to fiscal policy is inevitably more bumpy uh, here in the US. And I think this is what we've been seeing over the last two weeks.
5: Is there anything that you would uh, like to edit or change based on what's happened over the last week or so to your asset allocation outlook for 2018?
6: No, not not really. So um, if if we look at the situation, we, I mean, we've been gradually becoming more cautious in our uh, in our investments. Um, we, uh, at the same time, you know, we do not see a recession around the corner. That So that hasn't changed. Uh, yes, we've had a market correction, 10% or so, uh, but this is not enough to derail this economy. So we think at least over the next six to 12 months, the recession risk is very low. Um, uh, what uh, I would emphasize though, is that I think we are, close to peak growth for the global economy that doesn't mean a recession is around the corner but you know it will be difficult for the global economy to continue to grow at the same pace it has been growing uh, in 2017 and in the early part of this year Uh, the simple reason is that you know we're running out of slack in the u.s labor market Uh, china's credit impulse uh, has turned negative so the chinese economy is decelerating um, and the euro appreciation and the yen appreciation—that you know—is the uh, flip side of the coin of the weak dollar—will uh, also take its toll on on growth. So peak growth, um, no recession around the corner, uh, a more cautious stance in our asset allocation, um, but not outright bearish. So more money
5: devoted to commodities.
6: Yes. Um, and the reason is that uh, we think uh, inflation uh, will probably surprise on the upside uh, over the cyclical horizon. We're now getting a fiscal boost in the U.S. Uh, we are seeing uh, uh, we're seeing a weak dollar, so that spells higher inflation, um, and uh, we think commodities uh, will also benefit from that.
5: Does that include also things like uh, master limited partnerships for those that uh, are not satisfied with a uh, 2.8 or 2.9 percent 10-year treasury?
6: Yes, that's right. Um, So the energy sector, we are quite uh, uh, upbeat on the energy sector here in the U.S. You know, the pipelines, um, shale production is being ramped up given what's happened to the oil price. So that also should support MLPs uh, in the energy sector.
0: But Jakob Pim nails something there which is still we need to find enhanced yield. How do we find an enhanced yield? And I hate to use this word, but it's the word of the vogue and the, of the moment. How do we find enhanced yield? And what is the risk in searching for that given regime change? And the answer is there's no free lunch, is there?
6: Yeah, there's, there's never a free lunch, Tom. Um, but how do you find enhanced yield? Well, first of all, it requires hard work. It requires a lot of you know, bottom-up work to uh, look at individual companies, uh, to look at uh, sectors. Mm. Um, So a lot of bottom-up analysis from a top-down perspective, from a macro perspective, it is difficult, you know, to find yield. Uh, You have to go global. We think there are still uh, opportunities in emerging markets. We still like a basket of uh, Mm -hmm. uh, high-yielding currencies. Um, in emerging markets. So it is possible to find the enhanced yield, but um, you know you have to look very, very hard. Yeah,
0: I just think uh, it seems to be too good to be true. Jakim, we have to leave it there. Jakim Fels, thank you so much. Just never enough time. He is with PIMCO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.